probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again for the last day of the week is... Ryan Halpton. We're circling back around. You can just go to RyanHalp.com to find all the stuff that I'm into. Awesome. So thanks so much for, for being here for the whole week. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to do it. It's been fun. Yeah, so today we're talking about minute 45 of The Thing, which begins with uh, Windows and Bennings carrying the body into the storeroom, and then ends a minute later with uh, Windows um, covering up the body uh, with, a, with the blanket after he takes one last, one last peek at the double face creature. Yeah, so we begin here with them kind of carrying that in, and, and then uh, Max showing up to, to get his stuff out of the room. Uh, but first we get a, a little conversation with um, Bennings and Windows talking about how this is going to win somebody the Nobel Prize, which is like the one time in the movie where they do talk about that as like... That this is a significant discovery. <laughs> yeah. Like, in, in obviously in the novella and then even in the, in you know, Thing from Another World from, uh, uh, I think it's 1951, even in that movie, they're much more, you know, there's a lot more in that movie about the scientists. Like, I think the scientist even throws his throws himself in front of the creature to try and save it at one point. Like it, they're much more, oh, geez. Wow. <laughs> much more kind of, uh, you know, thinking about that aspect of it. But this movie, that that's about the only time we get them talking about how significant it is that they've discovered intelligent life in, in the universe, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. But I, uh, I do think it's, uh, it's interesting that they don't find it suspicious at all that they're being asked to lock the dead bodies up. Like to me, if I, if somebody told me to do that, that seems like, that, that should be a hint that there's something amiss that these that maybe these are not dead that there's something dangerous about them still. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's a really good point, and it's interesting that they're all just kind of going along with it, like do do do. All right, well everybody, you know, let's as as quick as you please clean out your stuff. Right, we'll, we'll get on with it. <laughs> right, they don't seem very concerned about it. Uh, Bennings in particular, which I've talked about it in some previous minutes. There's been some. There's some moments in the movie that I never noticed until doing this podcast where Bennings looks kind of suspicious. Last week when he he's kind of seems like he very much does not want them to watch the video of the UFO and he doesn't want them to fly out and see the UFO. And then here he's, you know, he's, you know, more than happy to kind of just lock it up and forget about it and, and, uh, you know, not worry about it. And then, uh, as, as we get more into the scene, he's kind of watching suspiciously as Mac and Fuchs talk too. So I think this is another spot where you can maybe infer that, that Bennings is, uh, there's some suspicion being cast on Bennings in, in some way. You said the suspicion being that he's the thing or that he's got some other third ulterior motive that is distinct from being either the thing or a human. Uh, that he's the thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what other, maybe he's got some motive about uh, getting these bodies home to get himself that Nobel prize. I don't know. Or maybe he's <laughs> like, but maybe he's working for like the shadow government or something. And he's like thinking about like, Oh shoot. Like if, if this gets out, uh, they're aliens. Yeah, maybe that's... I'm, I'm out of a job as a secret <laughs> government agent. That's a that that's a really that would be a really extreme reading of the movie. I'd love to see somebody kind of 
put that theory across the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not prepared to do it after this one minute, but, yeah. you know, give, give me some time. I'm, I will say I am a huge sucker for a fan theory. Oh, yeah. Um, it has to be good. You know, I don't, I don't like crappy ones, but the ones that actually have some, like, textual evidence to support themselves, I, I tend to... Uh, dig my teeth in at least in terms of looking at them and thinking about them whether or not i actually buy into them yeah no this and that's one of the reasons i i picked this movie because there's so much fan discussion and theory behind it about you know who gets taken over at what time and and who's you know what their motivations are and, and how the thing actually works I'll, most of that is left extremely vague in the movie. So it's a movie that really is open to a lot of interpretation and, and fan theories and stuff like that. So it's one of the, one of the fun things to discuss about this movie. Yeah. Ambiguity is critical for, for a good fan theory Yeah, to have some, some uh, place to wedge itself into the narrative. Yeah. And I, I should mention that uh, your that theory that uh, you presented a minute ago about Benning's maybe being a, some kind of secret agent uh, reminds me a lot of, I've recently just watched um, Harbinger down, which has a connection to this film in that uh, it's the people that did the original practical effects for the thing prequel were so upset that their effects did not get used, that they did all CGI in the finished product. I remember hearing about that even back when that movie came out. Yeah, it's interesting. I watched it because, you know, I was kind of knee deep in, in thing mythology right now. And uh, it's it's not a great movie. Um, it does have some really interesting and, and cool looking practical effects, which is really, you know, what you're going in for. But it is, there is actually a plot point in that movie where there is somebody, it takes place on a ship um, and there is somebody on the ship who is uh, a secret agent who their whole point was to get the ship to find the, the UFO and, or no, it's not a UFO in that movie. It's a, it's a crashed uh, like one man space capsule that has been infected or something. But yeah, that, they actually use that in that movie. So maybe they, uh, maybe they subscribe to that theory too. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, so this this scene too, we move on to um, McCready and Fuchs kind of having this secret conversation in the hallway, and um, I think this is a pretty interesting bit that um, that adds into some other fan theories. There uh, there are, are some fan theories, some joking, some serious that uh, that Fuchs and McCready have have some kind of relationship. Which, given uh, given how ready Fuchs is to put his trust in Mac, the drunken helicopter pilot, I I might buy into a little bit. I'm not sure. Well, I feel like if I'm in a crisis scenario in an isolated place, yeah, I'm going to be as good as buddies with the helicopter pilot as I can be. <laughs> yeah, that's Like, that's true. the guy you want to hang out with. Like, <laughs> oh, the guy who can pilot the craft that could get us out of here? Yes, I will be your friend. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe you do want to get really buddy-buddy with the guy who can help you escape and <laughs> if you need to. That's a good point. But yeah, it is. There, there's a lot of uh, uh, Fuchs does a lot of whispering and secret conversations, and it's all only with Mac in this movie. Like uh, he, he puts complete trust in Mac. So there, there's definitely some uh, some shipping theories online about the two of them. And I was gonna ask if that <laughs> if that had come up, if there were people that that were inserting a romantic subplot here, yeah, or at least a sexual subplot, maybe not that romantic. But yeah, well, and and you know, I could buy into it as as maybe not something that John Carpenter maybe or or Bill Lancaster's screenwriter 100. percent you know, intended, but I do think uh, if if you do subscribe to that theory, that it does kind of play into the you know the AIDS metaphor of the movie, and, and being that it predominantly affected the gay community, and and how terrifying that was when that was happening, and people didn't understand what was going on. That you could you know having a cast of all men, and, and potentially having hinting at a very subtly hinting at a potential um, homosexual relationship between those two is you know kind of plays into that uh, in some way, maybe. 
I um, like that actually. Yeah, it's kind of interesting if you kind of look at it from that that perspective. I kind of like it too. I wish there was a little more substance to it uh, than just you know there are there are only a couple of scenes when these two interact, but both of them do have that very kind of. Oh, this scene especially is very kind of intimate. Um, you know, they're very close. They're very they're, you know they're he's whispering to him. Bennings is kind of looking at them ominously in the background, like he he's kind of suspicious. So you know you can definitely get that that vibe from it if you read into it. Cool. But uh, I did, oh, I did want to mention there was a line earlier in the scene that um, uh, that was in the script and they cut out of the movie. I don't think they even filmed it, but that adds a little bit more to that the whole scientific discovery aspect where F- when Fuchs enters, he said we're, uh, they actually are burning the bodies, uh, the body of the dog, at least maybe not of the double face uh, thing that they're storing here. But and Fuchs says uh, we're going to go down as the biggest bunch of assholes in history. And uh, Max says, fuck history. At least we're going to live to be a bun- an old bunch of assholes, <laughs> which is a very Mac line. Um, mm-hmm. so I could, it definitely fits his character, although uh, it, it does not play into uh, the, the Fuchs and, and Mac uh, relationship that we see in the final movie, for sure. So I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. Totally. So and this this scene too, uh, with uh, the dialogue between Mac and and Fuchs has a line that I never understood or never really caught until watching it this closely. When okay, yeah, there's a word he says that yes. I don't know what that <laughs> word is. Is that what you're talking about? I know exactly what what word you're talking about because I think the same thing. It's thiocol, which uh, is uh, you know if you know you know he's talking about like the tractor, the the snow tractor that they go sit in in a minute, but. That's weirdly specific, and I'm not sure exactly why that is. Um, so Thiokol, I did a little looking into it. It's a company that, oddly enough, they made a lot of uh, aerospace tech as well as snow stuff. They like, I think they started as a company that made um, ski lifts <laughs> and then huh. moved on from there. to They made a lot of snow vehicles as well as um, they worked very closely with NASA. And uh, I thought this was very interesting, and I don't know if you know, this plays into the movie. Well, obviously it doesn't play because it happened afterwards, but... Thiokol was actually the company that was found responsible for the Challenger explosion. Oh, like the the gasket that failed? Yeah, that was. They were the ones that manufactured that, and they were found at fault after that happened, which is kind of interesting. It's a little surprising that they're still around after that. Well, the, the Challenger one is tr- is crazy too because it's one of those. We actually talk about that in data visualization courses that I've taken hmm. because all the data to predict that the failure was going to happen was there. It was just so poorly presented in terms of like clunky writing and bad diagrams and bad figures that it would have been really hard for anyone to actually see the warning. Oh, wow. And so if the data had pre- presented differently, you know, we talk, you know, like, what's the what's the big deal with data visualization? OK, well, here's an instance where like we might have been able to prevent a tragedy had we been able to visualize the data better and had it presented in a clearer way before the launch. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And, and you know, it's one of those things where, you know, a space launch is so complex and has so many different systems that have to go off without a hitch um, and, and everything that, you know, being able to kind of visualize and, and show that and track it in, a, in a, a way that is understandable and that somebody could look at, you know, in the span of a day and not, you know, have to pour through thousands of pages of printouts or whatever, <laughs> yep. you know, it makes sense. So, yeah, that's a that's a good point. But I so it got me to thinking, wondering if I thought it was odd that they mention it so specifically that he doesn't just say, you know, let's go outside and meet in the tractor or in the, the you know, whatever you'd call that. Um, that he does say thiacal. Um And I did find out that they also, they had another kind of disaster on their hands where they had a, um, a magnesium flare facility in 1971 that exploded and killed 29 people. Um, so I don't know. I, I, this is probably a very 
a, a pretty big stretch, but I wonder if it's specific because of something like that, that it is some kind of foreboding that if anybody, I don't know if, you know, when that happened in 1971, if that was big news, if, you know, that would be something people would remember, but, uh, you know, if maybe have some kind of sense of doom added to the, uh, added to the conversation really subtly. Yeah, to me, this is, you're getting into <laughs> Stanley Kubrick fake the moon landing territory <laughs> oh God, now. That. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, going, going back to fan theories, that, uh, that Room 237 documentary. I it was a great documentary. It is super, super cool. But once I got to that point, I was like, ah, I'm out. <laughs> when I, I mean, I watched, I watched the whole thing with fascination because the documentary is, I think, much more a commentary on the types of people that do, it, that it becomes create that, those yeah. things. But, yeah, it's more about like the psychology of the people who look for those sort of connections in pop culture. Yeah, and less than it is promotion of those ideas directly. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, yeah, I, I, a lot of the theories that they they talk about in the earlier part of that documentary, I was like, oh, that's I could definitely see Kubrick kind of keeping some of those things in mind, and, and that's that's believable. But yeah, the, once I got to the moon lane, it's like, okay, I see this documentary is a little bit more about you know, these kind of conspiracy fan theorists kind of thing than, than it is about The Shining at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so maybe my, my cold thing is a, is, is a pretty big stretch. <laughs> but uh, but I, I thought that was interesting just because, uh, yeah. That I'm was just a, glad to know what that word is now. Yeah, finally, that was, a, that was one of those lines that is, it's so weirdly specific and he says it so fast as if you're supposed to know exactly what he's talking about. But that is kind of a cool touch because that is how people talk when they're all comfortable and familiar with the jargon. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it is just kind of a bit of realism on uh, on the actor's part that to kind of know know that jargon and expect everybody else to know it too. That it doesn't matter if we understand it or not. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't think the only other thing I had about this is that um that storage closet is one of the one of the sets that is actually up was actually up in British Columbia where they built kind of the the fake uh, outpost. So this is not on the LA set, which um, I think this was one of the earliest things they, they shot when they went up to British Columbia, which I think a lot of the actors were complaining that, um, you know, they flew all the way up there just to film a scene in a little bitty closet where there's no actual weather or snow or anything. (laughs) They felt like they could have just stayed at home and and done this. (laughs) Yeah. But the storage closet, uh, you know, this whole sequence with, with Bennings, uh, what happens to Bennings later on was one of the earlier things they filmed up in, in British Columbia. I mean, the movie does have a very strong sense of place. Yeah, that's true. So I think you kind of need, I don't know, I think it benefits the movie that none of the shots feel like they were on a lot in L.A. somewhere, that everything actually feels like it takes place within this outpost, including the Norwegian outpost, right? Like, Yeah. <laughs> the Norwegian outpost is just a reworked version of the outpost they were already filming in. Yeah, which we, we talked about um, in earlier minutes. is It's kind of awesome because it's, on one hand, it's, an, it's a great independent filmmaker budgeting move, but it's also a great sense of, you know, comparing the two bases and, and giving you a sense of this is what's going to happen to these guys too. And that it really is the exact same base. <laughs> oh, interesting. But yeah, I, t- I talked a lot to um, Todd Cameron on minutes uh, 11 through 15. He runs the, um, the outpost 31 fan site that has got some super detailed um, maps and, and things like that of the base that they've worked really hard on. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to note that, you know, just watching this movie without kind of, you know, analyzing it like this i would have never guessed that there's there are two identical sets so there's one you know on a soundstage in la and one up in uh stewart british columbia that are essentially identical i would never have you know made that connection or, or noticed the the cuts in between them so that's a, a credit to the set designers and, and cinematography to be able to blend those two 
the two di- very, things that could have looked very obvious, but you know they blend really well and definitely don't take you out of the movie at all. Cool. So since we're since we're here at the end of the week, uh, I think this would be a, a good point to uh, to talk to, about uh, your experience with this movie. Um, do you remember the first time you saw the movie, or where you saw it, or kind of what you thought about it? I was definitely an adult the first time I saw it. I didn't I didn't see it as a kid. Like you, I wasn't super into horror movies growing up. It was something I kind of came to later uh, when I realized that there was actually a little bit more substance to certain horror movies, and they weren't just like gore and and uh jump scares yeah (laughs) so coming to this movie you know i came to it uh thinking a little bit more cerebrally about horror movies and wanting uh more than just a scary experience and really enjoyed all the performances and the effects are just incredible with all the practical effects that they did and then the ending being so ambiguous really just makes it stick in your head as one of the great uh horror movies i think of all time yeah, and so that's that's kind of my experience with it. I don't think I'm I, I don't think I'm especially uh, unique. One thing I learned from listening to your show is I didn't realize the whole ET connection. Yeah, <laughs> and ET I did see a lot as a kid, and it scared the crap out of me. Me too. <laughs> uh, super scary. <laughs> and I was uh, listening to a podcast about ET recently, and one of the reasons M and M's didn't give their approval to use M and M's in the movie and why they went with Reese's Pieces is because M and M said that. Um, the alien was the ET alien was going to scare the children, and so M M&M and M sales would be hurt by that. So what M and M's just didn't realize was that they were right. ET's super scary, but <laughs> it also did boost the sales of Reese's Pieces. So M and M's was correct in their assessment, but wrong in their prediction of the outcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's funny to me. I, I'm a little surprised that after being scared of ET as a kid, that you went on to become a scientist because that was to me ET was not the scary part of ET. It was the uh, the scientists in the um, or the government guys in the uh, in the biohazard suits were oh, like no, that's terrifying, terrifying to me. <laughs> well, to me, to me, the absolute scary. There's like three moments in ET that I find terrifying. The first is in the cornfield where he drops the flashlight and they're just screaming at each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the second is when. E.T.'s backlit in the sh- from the shed waddling at Elliot. Like, uh, yeah. When I mean, if you fell asleep outside in a chair and then woke up and there was this thing, like, waddling at you slowly, <laughs> like, kind of creep... Oh, that's horrifying. Um, that's, like, scarier than anything in signs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, the third scene is when the astronauts attack the house, because as a little kid, I thought astronauts were heroes. Why are my heroes attacking these poor, this poor family? Right, they really kind of vilify the, uh, the sci- scientists in that movie. <laughs> well, actually, one of, the, one of the points that the podcast I was listening to about E.T. was making is that... The whole point of the movie is that villains are adults. Yeah, yeah. The only adult who isn't actively antagonizing E.T. and the children is their mom. And she's struggling in the middle of a divorce, so she's got her own stuff she's dealing with. And so the whole the whole theme of the movie, and I've heard other analysis of E.T. that it actually has a lot in common with more... It's more of a fairy tale than it is a sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. Because it's about a boy, you know, lost, uh, lost in the process of growing up, and he meets a magical friend who helps him realize how to let go of some childlike tendencies and move more into maturity. And then the friend takes off, and you know, his mission completed, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. See, most of that was lost on me because uh, when you when you, <laughs> when you make a movie about a, a lovable alien that befriends a child, and then at some point in the movie, that lovable alien becomes like very corpse-like and and. Oh yeah, <laughs> very very sad. Like that that movie was so disturbing to me as a kid. Um, it's it's funny to me that that a, mo- a movie that you know 
that that movie had such a big impact on the thing at box office because that was a ostensibly a family movie. But to me, that movie is equally as scary as this movie. <laughs> yeah. At no point does the thing psychically connect with a child, forcing that child to get drunk and then sexually harass one of his <laughs> classmates. <laughs> yeah. A scene in that movie. <laughs> Very true. That does not happen in the thing. Uh, all the drinking that happens in this movie, and that is not one of the uh, scenarios that Like the occurs. first time they leave E.T. home by himself, he just proceeds to get blind drunk. It's a good, good lesson for the kids there. All, and, and you you know, we talked in a previous minute about how in the, the book version or in the previous uh, film version, mm -hmm. it, the thing is supposed to be a plant, and E.T. is also described as a plant. Oh, really? See, it's been a little yes. while since I've seen it. Steven Spielberg that. said that it, that in his interpretation of what E.T. is, E.T. is not animal. He's actually vegetal. He's a plant being, sentient plant, which is why he has like a connection of plants and can touch them and bring them back to life. Ah, and, you know, true. His species is collecting plants when they first land on Earth. Yeah. Um, they're, they're doing some sort of plant, uh, plant prospecting mission. Ah, so. See, there's another, another connection there. Yep. Who knew? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, the other thing I've been kind of asking people is, you know, as a, as a fan of The Thing, are you a fan of uh, John Carpenter in general? Is this kind of this the one of his that stands out for you? This is, I'm absolutely in the camp of this is the one of his that stands out for me. This ah, is totally okay. the one, yeah. And I think, it, you know, I'm not sure why that is. Maybe uh, this, is, this is one of the more sci-fi of his, of his movies. Sci-fi, and it's got, I would say, the least camp. Yeah. Maybe. Well, like, we, uh, like we've been saying, this one's probably maybe one of the lesser dated movies of his as well that doesn't really tie itself so closely with the 80s like some of his others do. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's that's part of it too. I need to go back and revisit some of the some of the more obscure ones, but this is the thing is definitely for me the pinnacle of the John Carpenter canon and uh and one of my favorite horror movies generally, so. Yeah, yeah, I'm a I'm I'm a big John Carpenter fan in general, but this is definitely my uh I think this is the best thing he ever did for sure. And I think he he agrees as well. Yeah, so I think that that kind of uh, wraps us up for for this minute and for the week. I think is there um, and any? Do you have any uh, last cracks at the bat about just the movie in general or any, anything you wanted to mention? I think it's interesting that both Kurt Russell and Keith David still disagree on the ending. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. And without spoiling anything, I'm 100 percent on Kurt Russell's side on this one. As much as I love Keith David, I think that the uh, editing of that scene in particular is very much meant to push you in a certain direction. And uh, I go with Kurt Russell's interpretation on on this front. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm kind of trying to figure out the best way how I want to approach the end of the movie because obviously everybody I've had on the show has some kind of theory about it and and has strong feelings one way or the other about what what the ending means. So I may uh, may try and figure out a way to have everybody back for just a few minutes at a time to to give their their quick yeah. Or, or I think you know you just give like have everyone while you're recording with them give their thumbs up thumbs down to various interpretations and then present the stats. At yeah, the end. that's a, that's a good idea. I'm, get, I'll, get a little I'm, bar chart action going. Yeah, talk, speaking of data, you know. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I always want data. That's, that's right. That's my thing. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna see if I can put together some kind of a general survey I could be be given to everybody. So I may be uh, maybe getting back in touch with you to uh, to get your your uh, thoughts on on that for sure. Would happy be happy to contribute. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for being on this week, man. It's it's been a pleasure. 
Oh yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, if people want to check out my podcast, it's we mentioned it earlier in the week, but it's called Science Sort Of, and it's a show where scientists and, and science aficionados hang out and drink beer and or other beverages and chat about whatever science has us excited that week. And so it's a really fun show. We've had a lot of cool guests on over the years and a pretty hefty backlog of things to go check out. So if people are interested in actual science uh, as much as they are in science fiction, I would encourage them to give it a shot. Yeah, I, I can wholeheartedly endorse that as well. It's been been one of my favorite podcasts for a long time. It's a uh, it's a really fun and entertaining way to kind of get a look at some some interesting science that's going on, uh, as well as uh, as well as some some interesting pseudoscience, uh, especially in some of the earlier episodes. <laughs> yes, um, yes. One of my one of my favorite shows we ever did was uh, a couple of ecologists were trying to make a ecological model profile of Bigfoot basically by taking sighting data as if it was real and then building a map based on those sightings. Mm -hmm. And then they did it and they were like, well, this looks very familiar. And then it was almost exactly mapped on top of black bear distributions in the United States. (laughs) And so like that to me is like, it's the total encapsulation of our show of like, let's take a silly conceit, try to do something Take with it very it. And then, seriously yeah and then oh wait no there's actually some real a real story here about <laughs> how science actually works how our world actually works how you know data actually works and so it's that's the kind of stuff we love to dig our teeth into and have fun with as much as we can and while hopefully teaching the listener something yeah it's certainly an, an entertaining way to learn learn something new every time a new episode comes out so uh yeah i definitely wholeheartedly uh encourage people to check out science sort of it's it's a fantastic show as well as um uh, all the other shows in the uh in the network that you guys put out so lots lots of great content there yeah thanks man yeah so That'll uh, that'll wrap up minute uh, forty five as well as the this week of the show. So, um, if you do like the show and you want to support us, uh, the best way to do that is to go to thethingminute.com slash Amazon. Um, and if you do that, and you'll just be taken to Amazon and can do your shopping like you normally would. And whatever you buy, we get a very small percentage of that at no extra cost to you. So that helps uh, you know cover some of the hosting fees and things like that for the show. Um, yeah, Jeff Bezos is one of the richest men in the world. He can spare it. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, one, one of. Wasn't there a whole thing recently where he was going back and forth between the first and second most richest? So I think he can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got the, he's got the coins to spare. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, take some coins out of his pocket and give them to, uh, give them to the thing minute if you can. But uh, you can also donate directly to the show using the donate button at the bottom of the website. And um, everybody who does either of those two things, uh, that is ex- extraordinarily appreciated uh, for, for the show. That makes a, a big difference. Even even the small smallest amount you can donate uh, makes a difference. So uh, we always appreciate that. So I hope everybody listening has a fantastic weekend. And uh, if you're still not assimilated by The Thing on Monday, make sure to come back and listen to another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out.